Well, let's pray together, okay? Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you will speak to us. And Lord, answer these questions, clear out the cobwebs, help us to understand, especially, Lord, in light of all of the propaganda, all of the half-truths and, and lies that are disseminated in our culture. Lord, penetrate those things with the light and the truth of your word. And we thank you for it in the name of Jesus. Will you breathe a prayer, church, and say, Lord, speak to me tonight. I receive your word in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll turn to your neighbor and tell him, you better perk up and listen. You're going to need this before you get home tonight. Amen. Well, didn't we have a wonderful church on Sunday? I really enjoyed Sunday. And um, I was shocked. We had one of the biggest crowds in, at 9 o'clock service we've ever had. And then the 11 was packed. So that's supposed to be Labor Day weekend. You're supposed to be way down. So what's wrong with you? I'm just kidding. It was great. A lot of people got saved. And, and, um, and you know, last Wednesday night, I don't know if you know this, but a, a man came over from the truck stop. Was he a driver? Yes, he was a driver. And he just said, I got to get baptized, and I got to get baptized right now. So we cranked up the baptistry. And I, I wasn't here to see that, but they, they got him in there and baptized him spontaneously. And who knows, we might do that one time and just have people coming in from the streets wanting to get baptized, get right with God. So it was kind of cool like that. Now, I, I've always uh, told you on these, these questions that I pick questions that I think most of us deal with on some level or another. And um, if you don't, you will. And a lot of them are kind of difficult, and, and some of them I pick because the question has to do with an issue where some really confusing, conflicting information is being fed to us through the culture, through our society. And so I think one of my um, burdens is to clarify Scripture, to clarify God's truth, especially when there is a controversy about something. So I'm going to dive right in. Thank you. I didn't even click that. Did you click that? Okay. Judy's telling me to move on. So here we go. Uh, here's the question. What is your response to Christian celebrities like singer-songwriter Vicki Beeching, who recently announced to the world that she's gay and God has no problem with it? Now, in case you don't know who Vicki Beeching is, let me give you a little background. She's a 35-year-old British Christian star of the American Christian rock scene, one of the most successful artists in U.S. mega churches, and now one of the most sought-after religious commentators in Britain. She recently came out as a lesbian and said this statement, quote, I'm gay and God loves me just the way I am. Now, the question is, how do we respond to that, and what do you do with that, and what is, what is your, your answer to that? So let me, let me just tackle this. Oh, and by the way, a little background. She went on to relay how her draw, her pull to this particular lifestyle made her feel ashamed and outcast for years. She was raised in church, according to her, yet never succeeded in breaking free from this temptation. It was, claims Vicki tormenting 
Now, let me, let me begin answering this by saying that while I've never struggled with this particular sin, I have struggled mightily with other sins. Who in here can say that with me? You have struggled with other sins. You have struggled mightily. Let's try this. How many of you have struggled mightily with some sin in your life? Some temptation. Okay. And so that's why I put here, so, so have all of us. So have all of you. Because there is no temptation taking you but such as is common to mankind. So let me give you for instance. Anybody who's ever been a Christian single knows the power of sexual temptation because that's what she's really talking about here, sexual temptation. And she is, as far as I know, single. But you've experienced sexual temptation in a world that is given over to sensuality and immorality. I don't know how anybody walks in purity today without the help of God. Our culture is so depraved now, so wicked now, morally. Okay? So we all need God in this. And uh, Vicki Beeching is expressing a battle uh, in the arena that we've all experienced, the, the sexual temptation. Now, I can tell you that no matter how great that temptation might have been for myself or tens of millions of other heterosexual Christians throughout history, God never changed his mind and said, Go ahead, I understand. Did he? See, I kind of, what's happened here, and I want to be careful with my words, but what's happened is those struggling with the homosexual issue have almost put themselves in a category all their own. Like nobody, nobody knows the sorrow I've known. Nobody has the battles I have. And see, I would disagree with that. Because there is no temptation taking you but what is common. Everybody is tempted and at, at some time in life, mightily tempted. So people who are drawn to the homosexual lifestyle, in my opinion, don't have any special corner on the temptation market. I don't think they're tempted any worse than anyone else who's being tempted towards, let's say, sin in the sexual arena. Some sin in the sexual arena. Heterosexual people experience just as strong a temptation to heterosexual sin. Let's be honest. Come on. Now, um, sexual temptation is sexual temptation. And it can indeed feel overwhelming, whatever the context might be, whether homosexual or heterosexual. Okay? Now, think with me for a moment. A heterosexual person can say with the same strength of conviction as somebody drawn to homosexuality... I was born this way. Okay? I was born to experience sexual attraction of the opposite sex because we're told by the homosexual world that they were born this way. Well, I don't know that if it ever occurs to people who hear this that we heterosexuals can say the same thing. We were born this way. Okay? So... So, in other words, having a natural bent towards something doesn't justify it. I was born to experience sexual attraction of the opposite sex. What about you? 
Okay? Now, that doesn't give them or us or anyone the right to indulge in behavior that God's Word condemns. See, just because you feel it doesn't make it right or doesn't justify it. Let me put it another way. Love doesn't justify sin. As a matter of fact, love won't carry the object of your love into sin. Now, I want you to listen to God's word on this because that's really my only authority. I'm simply making the point that people struggling with the homosexual issue, it's like welcome to the club because we heterosexuals struggle too. And, and our temptations are not any less than yours. Okay? So let's look at what the Word says on this. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Now, he's talking to believers here. Okay? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, he's about to give us a list. Don't be deceived. Everybody say with me, don't be deceived. Don't be Boy, do we need that today. He says, I don't want you to be deceived about what I'm about to tell you. I want you to catch what I'm about to tell you, and I don't want you deceived on these issues. And then he gives us the list. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. Now, you're probably thinking, well, wait a minute. What's the difference between a homosexual and a sodomite? In the Greek, it's a little bit difficult to parse the two, but here's my understanding. The homosexual is the aggressor. The sodomite is the passive person. But both are speaking about male with male or female with female. They're both addressing that. So notice again, fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will what? Everybody say it with me will inherit the kingdom of God. So these sins have the capacity to cut us off from the kingdom of God. Every one of them. I want you to notice that Paul, as the writer, being moved on by the Holy Spirit, because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, Paul, as the writer, is not uh, uh, picking on homosexuality. In, in one verse, he named four sexual sins. Okay? Now look at verse 11. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Now that's four words. You, four, you were, you were, you were, you were. So notice with me that though he lists four kinds of sexual sin, fornication, adultery, homosexuality, and sodomites, and they all keep a person from the kingdom of God, they're all put in the past tense. Who's he talking to? Believers. And so talking to believers, he's not saying these things you are. He's saying these things you were. So we can assume that having done those things and been those things, they aren't those things anymore. Okay? Because they have been born again. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away, all has become new. Now, I, I'm still with answering this, this woman. So don't forget that. I'm answering a question, 
and I'm taking a little bit of a, of, of a long route because I want us to be clear on this issue because our culture is really lying to us about this stuff. So say with me, such were some of you. The same Bible that condemns homosexuality also condemns fornication and adultery and incest and so on. And so Paul, by the Spirit, couldn't be more clear on the Christian's position in all of this. Let's look at what the position is. I want you to read this with me. Now, the body is not for sexual immorality, and the word there is fornication. Fornication comes from a Greek word called pornuo. We get pornography from that word, pornuo. Porn. You see the similarity? And pornuo covers all manner of sexual sin. You name a sexual sin, pornuo includes it. So a synonym is sexual immorality. It's the same thing. Now, he, look what he said. The body is not for sexual sin. But the body is for what? The Lord. Now, here's where a lot of Christians really don't get it. They just say, well, you're just telling me what I can't do. No, I'm telling you what you can do. You can walk in purity and you can walk in holiness and you can be freed from bondage to these things. It's not just things you can't do. God empowers us into a can-do. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, the way that we've got to understand the whole issue of sexual sin is who owns us. The person who owns us is not us, but we are owned by Christ. He says, you are bought with a price. He says in the same chapter, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which is God's. So Jesus purchased us with his blood. So our bodies are his. We're no longer our own. So we no longer live by the philosophy of, I am going to go do my own thing. I'm going to do what I want, when I want, where I want, with who I want. You could hear a pin drop on a shag carpet in here. <laughs> but I want you to catch this. It's not just what you can't do. It's understanding why God has called us to holiness. Okay? Because he owns us. We're no longer our own. We don't own ourselves anymore. Of course, never really did, but now we're owned by the Lord. So he says, I want you to understand that your body is not for sexual sin. It's for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. So he says in verse 18, flee sexual immorality. That word flee is so strong. It's from a Greek word that means run as if in terror. I wonder how many people do that. Run as if in terror. Now, how can we illustrate this? You know, Halloween, you know, when you were a little kid, you went to some houses and somebody really did it upright and they had on a mask or they had something out there that just scared you to death. And you took one look and you turned around and you ran like you were going to die if you didn't get away from that thing. That's the word. That's it. Flee, everybody say flee. flee. 
He didn't say negotiate with it, debate with it, argue with it, reason with it. He said, get out of Dodge. Okay? Every sin, now here's, now here's something else we need to get tonight. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. So I'm going to go ahead and say something that I really believe is true. Sexual sin is worse on a person than any other kind of sin. There is an added um, consequence. And you can read about that consequence in Romans 1 where Paul is talking about people who have given themselves over to homosexual lifestyles. He says, they bear a penalty in their own physical bodies. There comes a penalty. And we know that for people that involve themselves in promiscuous sex, it's not long before they pick up one of 33 possible STDs. It's not long. You bear a penalty. You say, well, did God do that to me? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying when you go outside of God's hedge of protection, you get bitten. Okay? And, of course, if that has happened to you, God forgives you. You're in a new life. The blood has washed it away. I'm not here to condemn, but I can't withhold the truth out of fear of hurting or stinging somebody who has experienced some of this. We need to hear the truth on this. Because our culture is telling us, oh, man, there's no consequence at all. We're teaching little children in the schools to sin sexually. I mean, the things they're reading in their textbooks, the things that are being provided to them, the things they're being shown in school on screens to teach them about sexual things are absolutely unbelievably abominable elementary school children. So somebody's got to say something, right? The church is supposed to fill that vacuum. So according to these passages, all sexual sins fall under the heading of sexual immorality, including homosexuality. And the Christian is to flee from it. Why? Because sexual sin is unique. Uh, it is a sin against your very own body, which is God's. Now, I want you to look at 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. Or do you not know? He's asking believers, do you get it? Do you know or do you not know? And we need to ask ourselves this. Do you not know? Your body is the temple, the house, the tent that the Holy Spirit dwells in, who is in you whom you have from God, and say the last part with me, you are not your own. Let's say it together, I am not my own. Let's say it together and personalize it. I am not my own. Now, that's what sanctification is all about. Sanctification is where you realize you're not your own, and you totally yield and submit yourself to God, and he begins to carry you in spiritual growth from one level to the next level to the next level where you become more and more like Christ. But until you come to the place where you know you are not your own and you totally yield to him, then you know what? You're going to be in a battle with God the rest of your life.
Now, I know that this is difficult, and, and, and I would never say to you that walking in purity is easy. As a matter of fact, it, it's hard. You've got to work in this culture to walk in purity. You've got to make up your mind you're going to do it. Okay? It's got to be a decision. Now, verse 20, you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So since you're not your own and you're to glorify God in your body, he says don't live in sexual sin of any kind. Stay away from it. Now, just because these passages are in the Word of God, like I just said, doesn't mean you won't feel strongly tempted. Even so, feeling a pull towards sexual sin doesn't mean it should be yielded to. Nor does a natural bent towards some kind of sexual sin somehow sanctify it and make it right. Like the singer said, I'm gay and God loves me just the way that I am. I'm going to deal with that statement in just a moment. Second, well, we're there. Let's take Miss Beeching's statement. I'm gay and God loves me just the way that I am. Now, on one level, that's a true statement. God does indeed love Miss Beeching unconditionally right where she is. But watch this, church. Miss Beeching is confusing love with approval. Okay? And, And that's what our culture, again, our culture does not really understand love. Because we hear people saying, well, I love this person who is the same sex, the same gender as me. So because we love each other, God understands and God puts his seal of approval on it. No. God loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you the way you are. Okay? We, 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 miss, we, we mix up love with approval. Now, let me tell you something. Love for a person does not equate into agreement with their lifestyle. How many of you have kids and you know that's true? You love them with all of your being, but you you don't agree with everything they do. And because you don't agree with what they do doesn't mean you don't love them. As a matter of fact, it's evidence that you really do love them because if you didn't love them, you wouldn't care what they did. Well, how is God any different? There are people I love very much in my life, and I'm strongly opposed to the way they live. But I love them. And God loves all of us just the way that we are, but he loves us too much to leave us the way we are. How many of you are glad that though God loved you way back when you got saved, he didn't stop there. He came into your life and changed you, and he didn't leave you the way you were. Okay? So love does not equate into approval. And that's one area where she, this singer, this, this young lady, has missed it. Miss Beeching also stated, I feel certain God loves me just the way I am, and I have a huge sense of calling to communicate that to young people. Now, she has millions of followers. Millions of people know who this young lady is. She has great influence out there. And now here's what she has said. Since I have come to the conclusion that God, because God loves me, he approves of my lifestyle, then I'm going to then export that out to young people anywhere and everywhere that I can find them. Now, if I could personally talk to Miss Beeching, and I would talk to her, let me tell you what I would say. I would say, Vicki, first off, I want you to know that I love you in Christ just the way you are. And I would mean it. I do. I would. 
But I also must add, Vicki, that I can't agree with the lifestyle you're in because the Bible expressly condemns it. And if the Bible condemns it as it also condemns many other sinful choices, it must be for your own good because the God of love wrote it. See, I've learned if God told me not to do something, there's a real good reason. If I can't see it at the time, I will see it later. He's not some mean old ogre in the sky that likes to kill parties. He, he, he wants us to enjoy. It says he gives us richly all things to enjoy. That's what it says. But when it comes to something sinful, he will always try to stop us. He will always try to persuade us. He will always condemn it because it will damage us. And sexual sin is very damaging. Now, I would continue, Vicki, I don't pretend to understand the depth of your struggle. But I, too, have had great struggles against sin, frustrating defeats, and moments of despair. Yet God still called me to holiness without changing his mind to suit my weakness. So if you choose to continue in a lifestyle that runs contrary to everything God's word teaches, that is your choice, Vicki. But please don't export your capitulation to defeat to struggling young people who need to hear a voice of hope saying that they can walk in sexual purity by the power of God. Okay? And that's what I would say. And I'm done with that question. Okay? Now, let's go to another one. And this is really switching gears. But gee, I guess you can wonder why this question would come to me after Sunday. But here's the question. You've talked about the violence in Islam and the Quran, but what about the violence in the Old Testament? Isn't it pretty much the same thing? And what room do we have to point a finger at Islam? And I got sent some pretty strong texts when I was off on vacation about this very thing by people who had trouble with a a post that I'd made on Facebook. And they they brought this question up. Now, let me answer it. Because this is is invariably what you're going to hear with people who say, well, well, you as a Christian have no right to point to Islam because, after all, the Old Testament's full of violence, and we know that Christians have done great violence after Christ. Christians throughout history have done violence. So what right do you have to point the finger at another religion? So let me answer it. When we look at the Old Testament and passages that are found in the book of Joshua regarding the extermination of the Canaanites, because you'll remember in the book of Joshua, they are told to go into these different cities and take out all life. All life. And when I first read these things as a young Christian, I struggled with this because it was men, women, and, and children. Amen. And cattle. Everything. So I used to look at that and say, wow, I'm glad I'm in the New Testament. And I'm glad I'm dealing with a New Testament manifestation of God. New Testament God. So you read these things in Joshua, and of course, the critics of Christians usually have not really read the Bible. Not always, but more times than not. So they hear about these things, or they sort of give it a cursory reading uh, regarding the extermination of the Canaanites living in the land. When you look at that, you can still notice a a dramatic difference in those passages and the events in the early history of Islam. Now, follow me. The primary theme in Joshua when the children of Israel told, go into these cities and take out all life. 
The primary theme in those accounts is the issue of God's holiness and God's long-standing patience with the sin and the iniquity of those cultures. Now follow me. Even hundreds of years before the invasion of Canaan by the children of Israel, God had told Abraham that the sins of the people living in the land had not reached their limit. But when the inhabitants had defiled the land to its limit, God put it this way, the land is going to vomit them up. Now, I digress for a second. I notice that with God, there is a limit with sin in a culture. There are going to be a lot of sin in a society, but as it progresses, and it always does, it metastasizes like a cancer. As it progresses, it reaches a point that it invites and demands judgment. And, and we, looking at sin in a culture through natural eyes, we, you know, like me right now with America, I can't believe that America hasn't come under total judgment by now. But see, God weighs societies in the scales. And he will warn and he will call and he will beckon and he will plead. Come away from the sin, repent of your sin, turn to me and I'll have mercy on you. But when a society stiffens its neck and refuses to turn and refuses to repent, the sin will reach its fill. And God is forced to judge. Why? Because God's a God of holiness. Now, if, if here's the scales, and let's say America's involved, I think we're down here. And there needs to be a turning to God, folks. The iniquity of America is great. Now, he says the land's going to throw, throw these people up. Look at Genesis 15, 16. Here is God talking to Abraham. After four generations, your descendants will return to this land that is to the promised land from Egypt. So after the children of Israel had been in Egypt 400 years, God sent Moses in to take them out. And why did God send Moses in to take them out after they'd been there 400 years and they had grown to a mighty nation inside of Egypt? Because they not only were called to occupy and possess the promised land, but they were God's chosen vessel to bring judgment on the people whose iniquity had reached the full. For the sins of the Amorites do not, look what he says here, the sins of the Amorites, as I'm speaking to you, Abraham, do not yet warrant their destruction. But 400 years from now, their sin is going to have reached the place where their destruction is unavoidable. And I'm going to call my people out of Egypt, and they're the ones who are going to go in and execute my judgment, and then I'm going to give them that land. So notice that God was patiently waiting likely giving the Amorites time to repent. I want you to say with me, God is good. Listen, God is a good God, church. He is all the time. God is so patient with our sin. How many of you are so glad that God was patient and is patient with you? Amen? I mean, listen, there have been times in my life, if I was me, I would wipe me out. Or that is, if I was God over me. But my God didn't. And, and there's been times that you couldn't believe that God didn't take you out. But instead, he had mercy on you. 
See, God said, I'm giving them 400 years. That's four centuries. That would take us back to the forming of this country. It was way past. Now watch. Similarly, Peter tells us about Noah's day. He says, God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. How did God wait? Patiently. I just lost some lights here, guys. I don't know why. I don't know if that affects the camera or not. Okay, so God waited patiently in the days of Noah. How long did God wait? 120 years. He gave them 12 centuries to repent. I'm sorry, 12 decades. I saw some of you thinking and it made me think. 12 decades. But think about that, 120 years. Every day there's Noah working on that ark and preaching righteousness and preaching and warning of judgment to come. Every single day. And for 120 years they resisted him, uh, ignored him, mocked him, ridiculed him until finally God shut the door on that ark with Noah and his family in there, and the judgment fell. The iniquity had reached its full. Now, God is doing the same thing in our day. Peter again writes these words, quote, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, says Peter, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And in verse 15 of the same chapter, Peter says, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. So God waited in the days of the Amorites. God waited in the days of Noah. And God is waiting in our day right now. He is patient, not wanting anybody to perish. And his patience results in more people being saved. So God had patiently waited for the Amorites to turn. When they refused and their sin reached the place of bringing judgment, God used Israel to execute his judgment. And the Bible reveals that God later warned the nation of Israel to be careful in not repeating the sins of the previous people. The very people that they went in to take the land from and to execute God's judgment on, the children of Israel fell into the same sin that had brought judgment on them. God said, otherwise the land will also throw you up. And you know what? It did. So we see that God is using Israel as an instrument of his justice to purge the land of its sinfulness. And later in history, God used other nations like the Assyrians, the Babylonians as his instruments to cleanse the land by destroying the people of Israel for their sinfulness. Who came in and was God's chastening tool with Israel? It was the Babylonians. So God used people to execute judgment all through history. So in comparison, we're talking about the difference between the Islamic religion and the Bible. In comparison, when one reads the early accounts of Muhammad's raids and wars, not only do we find no mention of the theme of divine holiness and its opposition to sin, but the primary motivations are the looting of the enemies capturing of the spoils of war, the relief and the pleasures of paradise, and conquering enemies to spread the rule of the prophet Muhammad. That's why they attacked. It had nothing to do with God executing judgment 
on iniquity that had reached its full. Another important point that I want to make is the fact that the divine command for the destruction of the few cities of Canaan was for a specific time, a specific people, and a specific place, and a specific purpose. And then it stopped. Nowhere in the later Old Testament period do you see God commanding the nation of Israel to go and attack other pagan nations, either as self-defense or as a way to promote faith in the true God of heaven and earth. It stopped after the conquest of Canaan. So it was a one-time, one-place, one-time era thing that God did where judgment was executed on iniquity, and after that was done, the rest of the Old Testament doesn't contain any of that. But in the Quran, we encounter general commands to kill and destroy the enemies of Islam that are applicable for all times, all places, and all people groups, even American journalists. Because since Sunday, another one was beheaded in the name of Islam for Allah. It is beyond dispute that from the earliest times, right after the death of Muhammad, Muslim splinter groups began fighting, killing, and assassinating even each other in the name of God. The history of Islam down to the present day is filled with the appeals of various Muslims to ever applicable Quranic passages to destroy and kill their enemies. And folks, we're living with this today. We're looking at right in the eye today. This is not just ancient history. It's now. It's here. People also point to the Crusades with the charge that Christians have also engaged in violence in the name of Christianity. Now, if you don't know what the Crusades were, let me tell you real quickly. Um, right after the death of Muhammad, I told you Sunday that Islam spread rapidly, quickly, and overwhelmingly by the power of the sword. Within a few short years after Muhammad's death, is, uh, Muslims swept in and took Israel and the holy city Jerusalem and captured it. Now, for a few centuries, that's the way it was. The Muslims had it. They, they had it captured. They, they ruled it. They essentially owned it. Then Turkish Muslims came in and captured it by the power of their sword. And when that happened, they slaughtered about 3,000 Christians. When this slaughter of Christians began to happen, a cry for help went out to the church. Now, the ruling church of that day was the Roman Catholic Church. And a cry for help reached the ears of Pope Urban II. So we need help, we need help. Send soldiers, send help. Deliver us from the sword of these Muslims. So Pope Urban II stood up and made a historical speech, and he rallied a huge army of primarily Roman Catholic Christians. And he said, we're going to march to the Middle East, and we are going to set Jerusalem and Israel free and retake it and set our brethren who are still there free. And so the Crusades began. The first crusade was pretty successful. The second, third, and fourth, and, you know, some people say there were eight or nine of them, and there were, but there were really four major ones. By the end of the fourth one, 
the Crusades had really failed. They had just failed. So the bottom line is, people say, well, see, Christians, they, they killed in the name of their religion. They were involved in the Crusades, and unfortunately, there, there was a lot of murder. A lot of people stepped out of the teachings of Jesus. Jews were killed. Um, innocent citizens were killed. And so critics of the church always point back to that. And they say, look there, the Crusades and the Inquisition. You, you did all those things. So don't tell me that Islam is wrong. Here's the difference. Please catch this. Christians who use violence in the name of God to destroy their enemies have no justification for their actions from the founder of our faith, Jesus Christ, because he taught nonviolence. So if a Christian goes, well, you know what, I'm just going to go kill some people in the name of Christ, you know, holding up the sign of the cross, he is stepping out from under the will of God and the teachings of Jesus Christ. He can't say, Jesus told me to do this. Whereas Muslims who are engaged in violence and destruction of anyone who opposes Islam, they have all kinds of justification for their actions from the Quran. Because there are 109 verses in the Quran that instruct Muslims to kill infidels, which means non-Muslims. So when they kill in the name of Allah or in the name of Islam, they can point to their holy book and say, it told me to. You can't point to our book and say, it told me to. Jesus said, put away your sword. He who lives by the sword will die by the sword. Jesus said, love your enemies. Do good to those that hate you. Pray for those who despitefully use you and and persecute you. Bless those that curse you. Muhammad said, if they don't agree with you, kill them, terrorize them, slaughter them, and Allah will help you. I'm done with that question. Now let's go to one more. This one I got a kick out of. Why do we see what seems like a display of God's Old Testament wrath in the New Testament in the story of Ananias and Sapphira dropping dead under God's judgment? Why are churchgoers today not struck dead during offering time at church? Because we wouldn't have any churches. Okay. I just had to do that one to lighten things up after this heavy stuff, you know. Now, let me give you the answer. Let's read the account. It's, it's pretty brief. 11 verses real quick. There was a certain man. Now, this is the book of Acts, Acts 5. So the very beginning of the church of Jesus Christ, right after Pentecost. There was a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, and they sold a possession. It was land. And he kept back part of the proceeds. His wife, also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter looked at him and said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? Because Ananias and Sapphira had told them, we're going to sell the land and give you everything. And they didn't. They sold the land and they kept part of it back. Okay, verse 4, 
While it remained, said Peter to Ananias, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? In other words, we didn't need your money. You didn't have to come tell us you were going to do this if you didn't intend to do it. We weren't, we weren't manipulating you to get your land. You just came of your own will and told us you were going to do this. Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. <laughs> By now, I can just picture Ananias' eyes, 50-cent pieces, because Peter's reading his mail. How did this man know I held some of it back? Because it was the word of knowledge. He, he saw through the Spirit, and he was discerning what had happened. And then, verse 5, Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things, and I'll bet the tithe went up that Sunday. <laughs> now, the story's not over. The young men arose, wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now, about three hours later, here comes Sapphira, his wife, and she has no clue what has happened. And Peter said to her, <laughs> tell me whether you sold the land for this amount of money. She said, oh, yeah, that's the amount we sold it for. That's what we gave you. Peter said to her, how is it you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. Two liars in the grave. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. You reckon? Okay. Now, this does seem severe. And again, if God was using this level of judgment on the church today, whew, churches would start disappearing off the map. And the preachers with them, some of them, First, every commentator that I've read suggests that Ananias and Sapphira were not true disciples. The verses just preceding this account, you go back to the end of chapter 4, you read how Barnabas, who was admired and esteemed by the disciples, sold a field and gave the proceeds to the apostles, and he was praised for it. So this couple was likely seeking the same kind of praise and the same kind of respect from these apostles who were having great crowds of people come to hear them. They were walking down the streets and people were being healed by their shadow. If you wanted to be in the good graces of anybody, you wanted to be in the good grace of these apostles in the beginning of the early church. So they said, well, we'll go do what Barnabas did, but we'll just fib and we'll hold back part of it and tell them this is all that we got when in fact we're not going to give them everything. One person writes, the severity of the punishment is justified by the consideration that this was the first open venture of deliberate wickedness, as audacious as it was hypocritical, against the principle of holiness ruling in the church. They had, according to Peter, lied to the Holy Spirit, not to them. Hence, God answered it in a way that slammed the brakes on any further similar activity. I think lying took a hike for a while. Now, I want to close with this. God has many times in history brought severe judgment for various sins as an unforgettable statement of how he views certain transgressions. 
and as a deterrent for others engaging in the same. I'll give you an example. Jude verse 7 tells us, quote, As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality, and we know that it was homosexuality, and gone after strange flesh, that means gender went for equal gender, calls it strange flesh, they are set forth as what? An example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So there are times in history when God executes a severe judgment, a really out in the open, strong judgment that he knows will go down in the history books. And he does it so that we will read these accounts and say, well, (laughs) you know, if they got judged by fire falling on them and vaporizing them on the spot when the iniquity of what they were doing reached its full, then I'm not going there. It's a deterrent. It should be. I wish America would read this. So Sodom's judgment was an example. It's an object lesson. You could say show and tell, a somber warning that these things do bring terrible judgment. So the bottom line is God's past judgments are to serve as present-day deterrents from doing the same things. That's what it is. So that's why they dropped like that. So whatever you do, don't lie to the Holy Ghost. Amen? Let's stand together, can we? How many of you are glad you came to church tonight? Oh, that's not very convincing. Come on. All right. You know, there's a lot of people that won't darken a door like, uh, of a church like this because they don't want to hear the Word. The Word convicts. Amen? But it sure does make you clean. Let's just go to Him. Can we lift our hands to the Lord? Say, Lord Jesus, thank you for this cleansing Word. Thank you, Lord. I'm just going to pray now. Thank you, Lord, for that you're a good God, that you're a a God that is fair, that is long-suffering, that is patient, that is merciful. So many times, Lord, we know you could judge and you don't. Thank you, Lord, for the patience of God that is being exercised in our day right now because it means more will be saved as the patience of God waits. But Lord, we know that one day the iniquity will reach its full. And so we pray that before that day comes, you will help us as a church to reach as many people, to go into that ark of the new covenant, Jesus Christ, as we can before the door is everlastingly shut. We just lift our hands, and I want us to pray to God. Say, Lord, make me clean. In a filthy world, help me to be clean. Cleanse me, Lord. Strengthen me, Lord. By the power of your Spirit, sanctify me. Body, soul, and spirit. In Jesus' name.